Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 45, entitled Funding the Startup of You. The title for today's episode came from a book, The Startup of You, that was written several years ago by Reid Hoffman, who is the chairman and co-founder of LinkedIn, and Ben Kasnocha, I believe. And this is an example of a book that I mentioned last episode on how to talk about a book you haven't read. I've not read this book, so I assume it's on the startup of you, but I liked the phrase, but I particularly wanted to focus on how do you fund the startup of you and start by talking about the travesty of student loan debt and look at post-secondary education, college education, how has it changed? Is it worth the money? And is there a better model to fund lifelong education than taking out debt? Back in episode 42, I mentioned and I reviewed the U.S. government's financial statement, mentioned that their primary assets are student loan receivable. The Consumer Finance Protection Bureau estimates total Federal student loans in the United States that are outstanding are $1.2 trillion. The Credit Bureau Experian estimates 40 million Americans have at least one student loan. That's up from 28 million Americans in 2008. The average balance is $29,000. And unfortunately, a sizable percentage of these student loans go into default. Student loans, most student loans are taken out through the federal government. And when I go through some of these default figures, you'll you'll understand why. Because the private sector, private banks, would be unwilling to lend money to students given the default rates. And your typical student loan right now, you can get a student loan for about 4.2% up to roughly, I believe, 7.2%. 2%, I don't know the exact numbers, so it varies whether they're subsidized or non-subsidized, and, and it financial aid can be very, very complicated. I remember when I showed up at college and went to the financial aid office, and they, they handed me a paper and said, here's your aid. Fortunately, in my case, most of it came in the form of grants, Pell Grants, We because I went to college at the same time my mom, who was... 45 at the time had returned to school. So between she and I, we got lots of grants and eventually some scholarships. But I, I, some, I did take out a loan through undergrad and then through graduate school. So I had about $10,000 in student loan debt when I got out of school. Eventually paid it off in a few years. But here are the default rates. This is according to the Department of Education. And they do different cohorts. So they look at, all right, the most recent data we have is who graduated in 2011 and started loan repayment. So these are defaults from those that started in 2011, and this would be through 2014. So the default rate is overall is 14%. So 14% of students have either haven't started repaying or fail to, re- to even make a payment on their on their loan. Again, this is just the 2011 age co- cohort. Or they didn't make a payment for nine months. 
So overall, 14%. The default rate is 13% for public colleges, 7% for private colleges, and 20% for for-profit colleges. Now, this does not represent the overall default rate for the lifetime of these loans. So the Department of Education does what's called a budgeted lifetime default rate. So they look at the sort of the 20-year life of these loans or 20 or 30 years and say, all right, which, what's, our, what's our default rate going to be? They estimate that 34% of students who attended a two-year public or private school will default on their loan. And 49% of students that attended a two-year for-profit school, a trade school or something that's for-profit, almost half are expected to default on their loans. For freshmen and sophomores who leave four-year schools without graduating, the Department of Education has budgeted a lifetime default rate of 25%. For juniors and seniors, they're estimating lifetime default rates of 13%. And for graduate students, 6%. So the more education, the, it appears to be the lower the default experience. And, and those estimated budgeted lifetime default rates are not based necessarily, I mean, they're based on history. They're based on current experience. For example, the, most, the oldest data I could find was from 2007. So those that left school in 2007 and had to start repaying their loans, 25% of those students who attended a two-year college or trade school have defaulted. And that includes 36% of those attending a two-year private for-profit college. And that data is through September 2013. Those are amazing numbers. 25, 50% type default rates. And if we compare that, you know, what's the most highest risk debt? We often think of a bank's credit card debt can be very high risk. Well, according to the Federal Reserve, only 2% of consumer loans, including credit cards, are delinquent. And, and you know, credit card interest rates can be 13, 19%. The federal government is charging 45 to 7% on student loans, where default rates are roughly 15, 20, 25%, depending on the student. Now, the problem, now why is that? I mean, what, and this gets back to this concept of the startup of you. When an individual enters college or enters some type of post-secondary education, they are essentially buying an intangible asset, something with a highly uncertain outcome. Many of them enter college expecting, hopefully, or or some type of post-secondary education, expecting to be able to get some type of job to be able to make those student loans. But that job is not guaranteed. Those opportunities are not guaranteed. There's obviously benefits of, of education, broader horizon, learning new skills, but it's an intangible asset. When you go out and you buy a car, even though it's depreciating, there is a secure asset. When you're buying a home, you have a hard asset. When you're buying education, it's soft. It's an intangible. There's no guarantee that you will be able to earn the money to pay back the loan. It's a debt-funded startup model 
When I think of startups, I think of venture capital fund and venture capitalists that go in and they make a number of investments and they assume many will be unsuccessful in that they'll lose money or barely break even. And they're willing to accept that risk because a few of the investments will be very, very successful. They'll make 10, 20, 30 times their money and more than offset the unsuccessful ones. But most will not be home runs. They'll be singles or they'll be strikeouts. Now, individuals, students, think about what they're doing if they fund this intangible asset, this uncertain outcome. Perhaps they will get sufficient employment or high enough employment to get a new job. But somebody entering a two-year trade school hoping to get some certificate, they borrow $20,000, let's say, for the two-year program. They're hoping at the end to get a job and to be able to make the loan payments. But it is highly uncertain. And yet, it is a highly concentrated, highly leveraged bet when they use debt to fund that. And a venture capitalist would never touch that. They would never be so concentrated and fund it with 80, 90% debt. They want to use equity capital. And so perhaps when we think about education and funding the startup of you, funding students, we should not be looking at debt at all. Maybe we should look at how startups get funded and explore some of those areas in terms of is there a better way, a better method. Two examples of of startups, there's a book called The Lean Startup by, I believe it was Eric Ries, R-I-E-S. And And in this book, he talked about a methodology where you employ disciplined experiments, minimum viable products, rapid learnings, iteration to determine if you even have a sustainable business and a sustainable product, if you can build a sustainable business around a product or service. It's really, it's bootstrapping. It's trying to fund a startup through organic growth, not go out and raise a bunch of debt capital or maybe not even any equity capital. It's simply exploratory and trying to to fund the growth by existing clients, but you do a lot of prototypes, but it's very rapid and it's a bootstrapping method. Why don't students use that method? Instead of, you know, the this idea of let's go out and take out student debt to get a degree. I have a one son in college, one will be entering college soon or post-secondary education, and another that's in high school and will be entering college in a couple years. None of them have any idea what they want to do with their lives. They have, they have some, some notions of things that they're interested in, but and maybe, maybe you, if you have children or, or you yourself, you went into college and you, you absolutely knew what it was you want to study, you wanted to be an engineer, and, and you did it. And there, perhaps, it is a much more certain outcome. If, if I go in and I know all about engineering and I math whiz, which I wasn't, and know that the job, the ability to get a job coming out of college as an engineer is much higher because it's a pretty high bar to make it through engineering school. 
there perhaps a partially debt-funded model makes sense. But if I don't have any idea what I want to study and really what my interest is in, and uncertain if I'm going to get a job, wouldn't it be better to bootstrap the education? And we can do it so much better now. I mean, you can take online classes for free. You can learn on YouTube. You can... My one son wanted to learn how to fix computers, and he knocked on the door of a computer repair shop and said, hey, I'll work for free if you'll teach me how to fix computers. They taught him for a couple of months, and then they hired him on, and he learned to fix computers. And at the end of a year, he realized he didn't really like fixing computers, and so he'll want to go explore something else. It didn't cost him anything but the time. But it's not a debt-funded model. In that case, it's a bootstrapping model. So there's a great deal of flexibility, and you can explore. And I think that's a much better model. But why do people go to college anyway? I think the reason why they go and enter programs where they're, they're uncertain whether they even like it is this, pro- this carrot that they're going to be able to get a job at the end. And I don't think that is a reliable reason to go to school. Maybe after you bootstrap for a time and explore different things, at that point you realize, yeah, there is a degree program that meets my interest and that I can get credentials for. And it makes sense then to take out some debt to to fund it if the outcome is more certain. Because the idea is to reduce the uncertainty. It makes no sense to take out debt capital, highly leverage a transaction when the outcome is so uncertain to whether you're even going to like it or whether you're going to get a job or not. Now, that's, that's one funding method, simply bootstrapping, organic growth. Another method is something that's fairly recent, even though Milton Friedman came up with the idea back in the 50s, and it's this concept of income share agreements. There are a couple startups, one Upstart, the other alumni, that match investors with students, and the students want to enter into what's known as an income share agreement, where they will receive tuition and fees and investment from an investor to pay for their post-secondary education, or a portion of it, And in exchange, they will pay a percentage of their income for some years in the future, be it 10, 20, or 30 years. It's very much, that's an equity funding model. If you're paying a percent of the profits, a percent of the income, that is much closer to what venture capitalists do, where they take an equity position in a company, not a debt position. An income share agreement is an equity position in an individual. Now, perhaps, and when I first saw this, I thought, well, that, that seems, I wouldn't say unseemly, but it just seems a little odd because that's a long-term commitment. But so is debt. And it actually is much more, it's better aligned with the uncertainty of education because equity by its nature is more risky, particularly equity equity positions in startup companies. The idea is that some of it won't work out. Many of them won't work out. 
students that take highly leveraged, highly concentrated debt positions in their education are very vested in the outcome. They want it to work out. But if you look at those default rates of 20, 25%, it's clear it doesn't always work out. And so bootstrapping or income share agreements is a better method, in my mind, to fund post-secondary education. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david, netsuite.com david. Rapture saying, don't college graduates earn more than those that didn't go to college? Isn't that what the data says? An example is the Pew Research Center shows that college graduates aged 25 to 32 who are working full-time earn about $17,500 more annually than their peers with only a high school diploma. The problem with that type of analysis is, it, it, to some extent, you could be comparing apples to oranges. First off, this is only college graduates that actually graduate. Many, as we've seen, don't graduate at all and still have, have that debt burden. And to be the most accurate, you would need to be able to compare how you did having gone to college versus the version of yourself that didn't go to college at all. Then, then it's very much an apples to apples. But if you look at, there was a study that PayScale, as a research firm does, and they gather data from graduates at more than 900 universities and college and, and look at and estimate what they have earned over their career or estimated to earn and and compare that to high school graduates, sort of the median earnings of high school graduates. And they're trying to determine what is the annual return on investment of college. And I'll link to it in the show notes. It has all the various number of colleges. And those numbers come out at roughly mid to high single digits annual return. There are certainly some colleges in the low teens and a number, if, especially if you include financial aid. But what the study, what it doesn't include is it doesn't include interest costs. So if your annual return from having gone to college is 6% per year and you're paying 6% interest on your debt and, you're 90, and you funded it with 90% debt, well, that's not much of a, a return. The other challenge with college is what is it that's driving 
those higher earnings? Is it because college graduates are smarter or because companies require a college degree in order to to work there? In other words, is it just a check-the-box, a hoop that the students have gone through and so the the companies insist that that they do that, whether they've learned things in college or not? Now, obviously, if you go to college, hopefully you are learning things and building skills but again, the comparison is against those that have a high school degree, not necessarily those that have continued to self-educate, bootstrap their education in ways perhaps outside of college. So what are you paying for when, when you go to college? And when you look at the, the rise in college tuition, this is from The Economist, the cost of university per student has risen almost five times the rate of inflation since 1983. Meanwhile, graduate salaries have been flat for much of the past decade. Five times the rate of inflation. What, what are we paying for when we go to college? I used to consult with a number of universities on their investment portfolios, their endowments, and their foundations, and I became a little familiar with what they, they're, they're spending money on. I'm by no means an expert, but I got somewhat of an idea. And when you look for, what are you paying for college? Part of it, you're paying for faculty research. I I got an email recently from a listener who is working, teaching at a college. I'm not sure if he's a full-time professor or adjunct, but he he talked about this, this idea that colleges reward their professors for research, not necessarily for teaching. And as a result, teaching can be put to the wayside. Oftentimes, they'll hire adjunct professors to teach part-time, and have, which have a very high workload, are very much underpaid relative to professors. Because what are you rewarded for when you, when you have a PhD or working at a university? To get tenure, it's the research. When you're paying upwards of $30,000 per year to attend a college, much of that funding is to pay salaries for academics doing research, not teaching. You're also paying for facilities. A number of colleges I work with were building buildings, and, and a college is a business, and so they're competing against other colleges. And one way they compete is by trying to have attractive facilities, particularly campus centers. How good is the workout room? How good is the entertainment on campus? Things that aren't necessarily associated with getting an education. Sports program is another thing you pay for at college in terms of, and I'm not sure how accurate this is. I'm not sure if if sports programs overall are making a profit or not. It seems to me at many schools, unless you're a, a, a top-tier school, they're not. And so that's another avenue where funds are going. So if you're debt funding your education, much of that money is going to, is not going to the actual education portion. So is college worth it? It really depends. I I think colleges are at an impasse. They're going to have to change. In an era of on-demand entertainment, Colleges are not on-demand education. They still have too many requirements, too many sitting in the class, let the professor lecture at you. You have to be there, have to take the notes, and it's just, it's not necessarily 
a a learning model that that at least <laughs> my experience with my kids necessarily fits the temperament of much of the younger generation. And so there needs to be a change. And I, I think a lot of students realize, hey, debt funding college just isn't, doesn't really have the financial payoff that it used to have. There used to be a stigma to not going to college. Many companies still act like that, but perhaps that is going by the wayside. And I used to be the same way. I used to think, well, if you don't go to college, that is a sign of weakness. And then a few years ago, I used to think the same thing of high school. What if you just dropped out of high school? I mean, those were considered the flunkies. And then I went on a college tour with my oldest son, who was 16 and considering completing or stopping going to high school and was looking at college. And it turned out a lot of the top-tier schools, liberal arts schools, you didn't even need a high school diploma to get into college. And he took the ACT test, started college, never took the GED, never got his high school diploma. He was able to hack his education. And, and my other son, same way. He did take the GED, but they got tired of high school. Well, maybe the learning models are changing. Maybe as a society, we're realizing there are more ways to learn than simply by paying $30,000 a year in a debt-funded approach to go to college. And I'm not by any means anti-college. I'm much more looking forward to different avenues to learn. Sometimes college is the best avenue. Sometimes bootstrapping your education, the startup of you is, is the best avenue. Perhaps an income share agreement. There doesn't have to be necessarily one right way. So that is episode 45, The Startup of You. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide. Well, I'll email you those show notes. And that's where I'm answering listener questions. So you can sign up there. And those insider guide members got a link this week to an audio lesson that I did for the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. And it was on what would happen if Greece exited the Eurozone. And it's Greece, and and they've been in negotiations. And by the time this particular episode is published, I'm I'm not sure if Greece will still be a member of the European Union or not. But I sort of walked through the ramifications of that. And and most of them are actually good. So I shared that link to Insider Guide members. They were able to listen to the audio lesson for free because I think it's that important. If you're not a member of the Insider's Guide, go ahead and sign up at moneyfortherestofus.net, and I'll continue to share that link in, in next week, in the upcoming weeks, just so you can listen to the audio lesson and sample what's on the Hub. The Hub is really for those individuals that would like more depth, explore the topics we cover on Money for the Rest of Us in more depth, and topics that are, are more timely. I really try to keep this weekly episode of Money for the Rest of Us evergreen so that I get emails all the time from listeners that listen to to all 30 lessons as they were taking long driving trips and just discovered the the podcast and and really are listening to multiple episodes many, many months after they have been published. And so I try to keep evergreen content on Money for the Rest of Us, the weekly show, but more timely content 
on the Hub. And you can learn more about Hub membership at moneyfortherestofushub.com. If you have any questions, please email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. Everything I've shared with you in this particular episode is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. I'm simply providing general education on money, investing, and the economy. Hope you have a great week. 